usually we preach through books, one passage at a time, work all the way through, and yet Proverbs is, is really not ideal for preaching in that kind of way. It's a unique work. And so um, each week we're looking at a, a kind of theme that we see running throughout or maybe a series of themes that help us understand God's wisdom in a particular area. And uh, that, that passage in Colossians has been, I think, helpful uh, in these last few weeks to kind of keep us focused in and reminding us um, where Christ is found in all of this. Uh, and let's keep our eyes peeled for that today, where Christ is found in our hard times. Uh, if you would, join me as I pray before we look to God's word. Father, we ask for your help we ask that your word would have an illuminating effect in our life, particularly if we are in the midst of a, of a dark season where it's very hard to see clearly. Meet us today. Help us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the last hundred years or so, there are two major changes that I'm particularly fascinated by. And especially even understanding the relationship between these two changes. Now, the first is that spiritual truths have largely been discredited and ignored in public life. Maybe not everywhere in the world, certainly not places like India, for example. Uh, but in, in what we would call the Western civilization, this is certainly the case. When modern people uh, try to address our most urgent and complicated problems, for example, they hardly ever factor in realities like God or sin, or good and evil in any, in any meaningful way, where really is interesting because this once was the foundation of, of, of Western civilization, but instead now empirical facts, reasoning, science have in many ways kind of replaced that as sort of the centralizing uh, framework. Everyone basically seems to think that these things are good and right, often without much thought, Meanwhile, we tend to be very skeptical of anything spiritual, at least, again, in the high, highest popular levels of society. This is the first change that fascinates me. The second change is that within this same period of time, uh, and even more so as of late, there have been unprecedented rises in depression, anxiety, and all kinds of mental illness. Uh, looking back on, on recent trends, one columnist, Markham Hayde, points out in Time magazine that among young people, rates of suicidal thoughts, plans, and attempts all increased significantly, and in some cases more than doubled between 2008 and 2017. This should get our attention. I certainly don't mean to oversimplify the connection between these two things as if to say that science and reason are, are, the, are the problems here. It's far more nuanced than that. But I do think there is some kind of relationship here. It seems increasingly as we become less spiritual, we have fewer categories even to cope with the despair and the distress that life often brings. Truth is, uh, though, this intersection between our inner spiritual life and our bodily physical life is not new. The Proverbs even speaks directly to it. Uh, chapter 17, 22, it says, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. And these are the kinds of hardships 
that we will consider today. Today we're going to reflect on this intersection between two realities, uh, spiritual life and God, and also our, our suffering and our trials. We're going to see God's wisdom for hard times. Now, by hard times, I mean any season of life that's characterized by sorrow, by despair, or anxiety, what some might call the dark night of the soul. And if you've experienced an especially hard time, you know it can feel as if life has altogether stopped or has been flipped upside down. Nothing that once seemed to make sense makes any sense. It's hard to even know, in some cases, how to to live and, and just carry on with life. Maybe... You are in a dark season like this even now. As we consider what the Proverbs have to say about hard times, I think we're going to see that in general, they encourage us to look in three different directions to find, in a way, three different kinds of help. The Proverbs call us to look inward, that is within ourselves, to look outward, that is to others, and of course to look upward, that is to God. And we're going to see, again, various kinds of wisdom that, that help us in each of these directions, especially in hard times. So these aren't in any kind of a sequential order. For our purposes today, first, let's just consider looking inward, our inner thought life. And here, what we, I think, ought to be after, as we're going to see in the Psalms, is honest reflection. Honest reflection. With me at Psalm 20, verse 5, says that the purpose in a man's heart is like deep Water. That is, there's a lot to it. It's complex. Uh, it's not really easy to see what's really there if you're simply looking at the surface. It's like deep water, but we see a man of understanding will draw it out. When we're in distress uh, for any reason, really, it is very important to spend a lot of time in self-reflection, and we need to pay very careful attention to the spiritual quality of our self-reflection. How is my thought life going? Am I running away from my thought life, trying to fill my life with all kinds of mindless entertainment? Am I just sort of stuck, not sure what even to think? Are my thoughts consumed by worry or anger or fear? The truth is it is far too easy for us to deceive ourselves even uh, and certainly to deceive others regarding what is really going on within us. Now, every hard time is different. Uh, For that reason, it may require a different kind of reflection, but usually the kind of reflection that is needed has something to do with sin and its impact on us. Now, if you're hesitant to buy that, really, is everything has to do with sin, just bear with me. Uh, First, obviously, yes, if we're experiencing intense relational conflict, for instance, or, or rejection because of some wrong that we have done in our lives, Yes, or if we're experiencing suffering of a physical nature because of an addiction that we have or some very unhealthy habit that we've pressed on in, then yes, we need to be honest about the sin in us that is causing all kinds of chaos in our lives. The problem, of course, is that we don't like to think those kinds of thoughts. In our sin... We will go to great lengths even to avoid being honest with ourselves about them. We're prone to twisting and distorting even the most simple and foundational truths in order to keep our minds from coming to this conclusion. We are sinners before a holy God. Proverbs 19.3 puts it this way. 
It says, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. And maybe this is where some of you are today. If we are not honest with ourselves about our own sin, we will be destined for a lifetime of sorrow. But even on the other hand, if we're gripped by sorrow and despair because of a tragic loss of a loved one, for instance, or maybe even the loss of someone to suicide, if our anguish is not the result of our sin, it is still almost certainly the result of sin in general, at least indirectly. I think of Hannah this morning and her cousin Kyle, who lost his wife. Can you imagine? Just doesn't wake up. That did not happen because of any one person's sin. And in some ways, to be honest, this is what makes it so hard to comprehend. But if we are going to make sense of a trial like this to the extent that we can, if we are going to heal from this, we need our thought life to be saturated with biblical, spiritual categories that do help to chart a course for us, that help us to understand why something so horrendous could even happen at all. For example, death itself is the result of sin. Anytime anyone dies, it is evidence that something spiritual is deeply broken in this world. God hates death. When he created all things, he never intended for this to be a part of the equation. In fact, he is in a long and complicated process to fix this. He raised up a nation to bring eternal life to all other nations. Then he sent his son, Jesus Christ, as a citizen of Israel to live a human life and die himself so that we can have victory over sin and death once and for all. But when a tragedy like this strikes... Unexpectedly, this is not naturally where our minds tend to go, is it? It is far more natural for our thought life to spin out into to worry and fear and, and despair, which is why even if our hardship is the result of, of someone else's sin, sin in general, just the, the, the indirect effects of sin, we need honest, spiritual self-reflection. We need to, as Paul says, take our thoughts captive, as he says, renew our minds. When the details of our life don't seem to add up to anything meaningful or good, uh, when we just feel like we need something, (laughs) and we don't even know what that something is, we need answers, we need respect, we need closure, we need Rest, we need hope. Could it be in these instances what we ultimately need is wisdom? Wisdom. Wisdom to live in the way that God intends in a world that does not work in the way that God intends. That is no easy thing. Church, this is real spiritual work. It requires honest self-reflection, really striving after wisdom in our innermost being. It requires us to say inside of ourselves, I do not have what I need in me. God, I need your wisdom 
from above, something bigger, better, transcendent beyond me. How am I supposed to reconcile this relationship? How am I supposed to to heal through this grief and this pain? We saw, in a way, in, in answer, even in our call to worship in James 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, we read, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But then James continues to say, if anyone asks, he must believe and not doubt. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from God. And here's why. He is a double-minded man. You know what that means? It means he's not honest even in his inner life. He's not honest in his self-reflection. And as a result, he will not, cannot experience the kind of wisdom that we are pointed to here. Meanwhile, Proverbs 19, verse 8 says this, Whoever gets sense loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will discover good. And I love this too in Proverbs 24. My son, eat honey, for it is good. And the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know, it says, that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. Church, when we're in a dark place, more than most things, what we really need is wisdom. And to get it, we must seek after it in our innermost being. So let's look inward with honest self-reflection. And next, let's also look outward, that is, to others. And here, as we do that, what we're really after is wise counsel. Wise counsel. Uh, In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis explains that no human being is merely mortal. We were all created to live forever. We will live forever. And this needs to change the way, he says, that we approach our friendships. As we engage with friends, especially intentional discipling relationships, there is a kind of seriousness to those friendships that is really appropriate. Walking with others and giving wise counsel, for example, is a weighty responsibility. But I do love the qualification he gives when he says this. He says, this does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, he says. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. I love that. These are the kinds of friendships we need in hard times we're going to see. We need weighty spiritual friends who are eager to play and to give wise counsel because they love us deeply and they have taken us Seriously, I can't help but wonder if part of what he means here in this, in this quote is what he's talking about is also found in, in Proverbs 14, 31, which says, even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. We need friends like this. We need friends who can go here with us and experience joy with us, and and, and even um, ache, even in laughter. 
With this in mind, here are just a few Proverbs to kind of orient us a little bit when it comes to spiritual friendships in hard times. First one in, in chapter 13, verse 20 says this. It says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. In other words, foolish friends make hard times harder. Some of you are thinking, yes, I've been there. It turns out one of the primary ways we receive wisdom, though, is from others. It is from wise friends who can give us wise counsel. And it should not surprise us, then, that to avoid these kinds of friendships altogether is certainly also considered foolish. If you look at chapter 18 and verse 1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. In other words, fools will avoid looking outward to anyone other than themselves at all costs. Especially in hard times when there's so much at stake and we are not particularly interested about giving others a detailed glimpse into our inner life, it is very tempting to isolate ourselves. All of us have this foolish, sinful tendency within us, and it just helps, I think, to settle this in our minds in advance, once and for all, to say, listen, my judgment does not get better or clearer when I isolate myself. If anything, it gets far worse and far fuzzier. Now, this does not mean, no, that we have to be public in, in airing all of our deepest trials with everyone. But these days, it, it's, it's increasingly popular for people to basically have this sense that no one understands their suffering. And, and of course, they couldn't understand their suffering because this is their lived experience and this is not anyone else's. Sure, there is some truth to this. Other people are not us. That's true. But there is something incredibly clarifying about walking through difficult trials with a trusted, wise friend. And this is specifically because they can see our lives often clearer and more objectively than we can, especially when we are in the midst of trial and suffering. See, we tend to put a premium on our inner feelings. The Bible actually puts a red flag on our inner feelings says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. This is why it's never going to cut it just to look within ourselves, right? We need friends who can remind us that this is true even when the way we want to go seems right to us. We need these friends. And yet, at the same time, not all relationships will be helpful in hard times. Uh, some, in fact, need to be avoided. We read in, in 22, chapter 1, drive out a scoffer and strife will go out and quarreling and abuse will cease. Hard times will cease. Sometimes the solution to our hardship is actually to stop looking outward, at least to that person. The truth is we probably won't have many friendships with this kind of spiritual quality to them. Proverbs 18.24 puts it this way. It says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, face many hard times, but there is a friend, it says, who sticks closer than a brother. Now, as our church continues to grow, this is one thing I do think that will uh, change, rather, that we'll need to make. 
uh, while it is true that, yes, we are all members one of another and we are accountable to one another in a real and spiritual way that matters, we will not be able to know and walk with everyone in the life of our church to the same extent. And that's okay. I think it's important for us to understand that. Uh, if we try to, if we think we should, it, it can lead to all kinds of unmet expectations, hurt feelings, unnecessary conflict. We cannot look outward in this way to just anyone or even to every member of our church in the same way. But it is vital that we have at least one or two friends that we can walk with in this way. Ideally, yes, within our church. Friends who we can look to to share any burden and confess any sin. Now, I, I want to just briefly draw a few simple applications from the Proverbs about how these kinds of relationships tend to work. Here are just four things, as an aside here, that wise friends do for one another in hard times. First, wise friends point one another to the truth of God's word. Proverbs 13 here says that whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, creates all kinds of hard times. But he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. And, and, and here's where friendship comes in. The teaching of the wise, it says, is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. See, all of us need wise friends who can teach us the life-giving word of God when we need it the most. Friends we can run to and just say, help me understand what it is you think God feels about this in light of his word. Would it be normal, a normal thing for you, for instance, to do this kind of a thing, to, to maybe meet with another friend or member of our church, to share what's going on in, in your lives, and then even to read and apply a specific passage of Scripture to your lives together and then, and then pray together? Is this, is this normal for us in our spiritual friendships? More and more, I pray it, it would be that this would be the kind of church where those friendships flourish and multiply. Wise friends point one another to the truth of God's word. Next, wise friends um, confess sin and extend grace. Wise friends confess sin and extend grace. Uh, Proverbs 28 verse 13 says this, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Life will, will not go well for him. It will have many hard times. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. What an incredible and beautiful promise that we have here. Think about this. Confessing and forsaking sin, in a way, it kind of does require a close friend in this way, does it not? Now, unlike Catholics, we do not believe in sort of spiritual classes of people that we must confess our sins to. That's true. Uh, but let's not go so far to the other extreme that we don't even really value this discipline of actually opening our mouths with trusted brothers and sisters to actually confess our sin. I'm angry in sinful ways, and, and these are the ways that that hurts my family. Or I'm I'm self-absorbed. I'm proud in this specific way or that way. I'm convinced this is an important aspect of a healthy inner life for any Christian. Uh, many people live in constant despair and anxiety because they have hidden, unrepentant sin. That they are either not being honest about themselves 
or they're going to great lengths to keep hidden from everyone else. And as a result, they never experience the freedom of God's grace extended to us through a friend. You know all those struggles you have with pride and anger? Yeah. I see those. I see what you mean. And I still love you. I'm with you as you grow and work through this. What? <laughs> Why? Well, because this is what Christ has done for us. And this is what he calls us to do for one another. Wise friends handle our sin both seriously and graciously. We can, they confess and they extend grace. And next, wise friends also just encourage us. They encourage one another. Proverbs 12, 25, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Same in 11, verse 25, whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. This word encouragement, it basically actually just means to put courage into someone. Uh, the idea is basically if you can imagine a friend who's discouraged, they're sad, they're scared, they're deflated for some reason. The, the thing they lack is courage, a kind of lighthearted confidence to, to go out and to engage the world and to be a fruitful person. And, and to encourage them is basically to, to take some of your courage that you have and to put it into them. It's to share your courage with them, to water them in their season of drought and dryness. And sometimes, especially in the hardest of times, this may simply look like the encouragement of being present with our friends who are in the midst of grief and sorrow. Um, my wife, Carrie, her sister, has a major complicated health uh, crisis in her family. Today, she came here, dropped the kids off. She drove out to Madison. She is there to put courage into her sister as she navigates this trial. Be still with your friend as he suffers. Sit with her. Cry. There are no words often, right? But our presence itself can, in a way, put courage into people. So where can God use you to put courage into someone else right now? I want to even ask him to, to draw a name to mind and a face. How can you breathe that encouragement and life into them? And if you are in need of that and experiencing a hard time, consider who can you depend on to put real, sincere, spiritual courage into you? Reach out. Look outward to them. And finally, wise friends give sound spiritual guidance. Now, we did a whole sermon on correction, if you remember. There's a lot of overlap. These are closely related. But this kind of guidance in the, in the Proverbs can be both positive or negative. Uh, in, in 27, verse 17, it says, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. We all need these kind of friends who can look at the spiritual trajectory of our life and our decision-making, and they can say, this seems healthy, uh, that does not. They can look and they can say, listen, it seems like it'd be good for you to honor God in these trials in these ways, but, but not in this way. That does not seem good or right. Do we have friends like this who, like iron, sharpen us? And if so, do, are we open to that? Do we invite that sharpening? Do we listen? 
Proverbs 19, 27 says this. Cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Life will get harder. The elders are just now beginning a long discussion at this point about a handful of important things like like biblical counseling, for instance, church discipline, and also their relationship even to things like secular psychology and therapeutic treatments. The really big topic, right? Uh, And I love this kind of thing. I'm reading a book right now, Five Perspectives, Christian Views on Psychology. Uh, It's it's great. Uh, It's really, really helpful. I hope to maybe get some clarity on some of these things, provide some help or guidance, maybe some partnerships that can help us in these ways as needs like this surface in the life of the church. I don't know exactly what will come as a result of that, but I will say this. uh, If we basically think, yeah, I'm a member of this church. This is a real spiritual thing, and it matters. But when my life gets hard, what I really need is a psychologist. Or even if we think, Well, no one's really qualified to speak into my trials uh, because they are not a clinical psychologist. I think we've really, really missed something. I think this mentality can be a real barrier to spiritual vitality and wisdom that God has for us in the body of Christ. Now, in some cases, without question, there is a unique and valuable help that we can get from a therapist, for example. Absolutely. We have members of our church who serve in this field. It's, It's incredible work. Uh, particularly when, when part of our burden or trial is, is especially physiological even, like, for instance, an eating disorder or, or a kind of situational anxiety where when I'm in this setting doing these things, it's like my body just seizes up, right? That makes a lot of sense. And, and the average Christian friend and even pastor will not be trained in this sort of thing. But I do worry that by professionalizing our every burden, As if we need someone with a PhD in psychology to help us in our hard time, what we may be doing is isolating or insulating ourselves from the kind of spiritual care and help that we're all called to give and receive in the church. Uh, For instance, God has called elders, for example, to play a unique spiritual role in each of our lives. Think of Jesus' words to Peter, the apostle, a leader in his church, in the early church. He says, do you love me, Peter? He says, yes. Feed my sheep. He says it three times. This is part of how God intends to care for his people. He does this through his body, through the spiritual care of under-shepherds who serve under the chief shepherd. And we are even told that leaders will give an account to God for how they keep watch over specific people's souls in Hebrews 13. This is in ways that simply cannot be said of, of a therapist or a psychologist, as helpful as they may be, uh, and even, even, even if they're a Christian therapist. Now, that may make you think, well, wow, we, we better train up some really good elders uh, who can do this kind of thing. Then I say, amen to that. Amen. It's one of the most important things we can do. And and praise God, we do have some fantastic men serving as elders in this way, doing this kind of ministry on a regular basis. I pray soon we'll have even more. This would be part of the culture of our church that we cultivate these kinds of relationships. But for all of us, this is the kind of spiritual community we are called to be together as the body of Christ. We are called to... Be joined together in spiritual friendships where we point one another to the truth of God's word, where we confess sin and extend grace, where we encourage one another 
and where we give sound spiritual guidance. We need to look outward to others for wise counsel. But the truth is, no matter how much time and energy we spend looking inward and outward, at times in this life, we will face dark seasons of sorrow and hardship. And sometimes no amount of reflection or wise counsel from anyone will just fix it. Uh, Which is why next, and by far most importantly, we need to look up. And that is to God. And here our aim needs to be faith-filled surrender. Chapter 16, verse 2, Proverbs says, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. Again, this is why looking inward is not enough. But, he says, here's the key, the Lord weighs the spirit. The Lord weighs the spirit. In other words, whatever our trial may be, we can think we know the way forward. We may feel we're on a pure path that leads to the healing we want, but our judgment of these things is not ultimately what matters. What matters most of all is our spiritual posture towards the one true and living God. He has all authority over our life and all life. He is the one who knows and weighs the intentions of the heart. And so when we suffer for any reason, the question is, will we trust in the Lord and surrender to him in all of life? Or will we refuse to look upward in this way and go it alone? It's a great hope and encouragement to us, church. Proverbs 18.10 says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Praise God. Now, there is a cheap and dismissive way to talk about faith in God that basically whitewashes right over anyone's pain and suffering as if if you just believed more, then you wouldn't be having such a hard time. That is not at all what I'm talking about here. Uh, Suffering is an important part of the Christian life. God often uses it for good. A deep, intense sorrow is a very real experience. And it is not something we experience just because we lack faith. That is certainly true. Uh, But we do also need to be very careful that we not overcorrect this error and start to think, talk, and live as if faith in God is not really all that important in our hard times either. As if... Oh, you have faith. Well, that's great, but it's not going to really get the job done. As if, oh, faith in God is your first instinct. I mean, good, sure, but you're going to need something more than that. Frankly, I think this is the far more dangerous error to make, in my opinion. Because faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ is the most powerful spiritual force there is, period. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. For who? For all who believe. That's how important faith is. The power of God for salvation. We are told by Christ in all seriousness that a tiny little bit of it can move mountains. It is powerful, faith is, enough to justify even the most wicked and vile sinner before a holy God. Faith in Christ has the power to raise dead people to eternal, everlasting life with God. Church, faith in Christ is powerful enough to carry us through any hardship or trial, not because there is something magical about our faith, 
but because there is something majestic about our Christ. Especially in hard times, I hope we can see it really matters where we look. Let's look in with honesty. Let's look out for wise counsel. Let's look up with faith-filled surrender. The truth is we are not promised a solution to every hard time we face here and now, but thankfully as Christians, we are promised something far better than that. As Paul says in this letter to the church in Colossae, likely very similar to our church in many ways, part of the very same heavenly family even today, he says he struggled to see them face to face. And he did this, he tells us, for one very specific reason, that their hearts may be, here's that word, encouraged. Being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Church, if we want the wisdom to endure even the hardest of times, we can be sure that wisdom is found right here. It is found and can only be found in Christ by faith as a member of his body. But the hope and wisdom we find in this eternal resurrected man will not just sustain us through some of our hard times, some of the time. No, no. Proverbs 10, 25. When the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. Would we be established, church, forever as we cling with faith-filled surrender to our Lord Jesus Christ?